Today, we celebrate one year of pro wrestling history nerds by discussing the man, the legend himself, Martin Farmer Burns. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Congratulations, listener, or hopefully listeners. You pressed the button, you downloaded the episode, you're streaming here with us. Who am I? What am I talking about? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a professional wrestling promoter, booker, ring announcer sometimes, not often, don't like doing it, even though I love the sound of my own voice. But right now, more importantly, I am a pro wrestling history nerd, and I am here with the Mothman to my Jersey Devil. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you, man? I was going to go with more of a DC B-card reference, like maybe like the Green Lantern to your Aquaman, but Chongo digresses. Now I feel like Boris and Natasha were sitting here with Fearless Leader because we are joined as the third, like, wheelman on this motorcycle with a sidecar of a, of a show that goes back in time by the submission extraordinaire. Uh, actually, I'll leave, I'll leave you to do the proper introduction to the chat. Well, it's a good thing you got everybody all excited, but it is exciting news. We're here with uh, Jake Shannon. How the hell are yes! you, man? Dude, I'm just I'm just trying to keep up with you two, man. Like you're all on your vodka Red Bulls or whatever. I'm just sitting here teetotaling, having my butt, my glass of water. And that will play a factor in today's episode. It'll be a, a late motif, if you will. But we're excited to have Jake here uh, from Scientific Wrestling, a catch wrestling uh, man himself, because we are talking about one of the most important figures in catches catch can wrestling history in the United States. We're finally going to talk about him. He's been a background character in several episodes. I'm wearing a t-shirt of the man right now like a real goddamn dork. We're going to talk about... Martin Farmer Burns. Yeah. And I mean, the combination of like the the perception of country strong plus like the most carny guy of all time, maybe the first wrestling gimmick of all time and the 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 definition of like the shooter that doesn't want to look like a shooter but will tear anybody up in the room and is kind of playing down how dangerous he is. Farmer and like trainer to the stars, man. Yeah, he's hard to beat, man. I mean, he's really hard to beat. And the thing that's funny is it's like, you know, guys like Gotch and all that, they get all the spotlight. But Martin Burns was like the real deal, the complete package. And what I loved is like how he transcended wrestling as well. I mean, he he dominated, dude. He was middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight. Like he would wrestle guys 100 pounds more than him, just cook them. But on top of that, and he wasn't formally educated, you know, like, that was like a regret of his. Like, his kids, I'm sure, you know, how, like, you know, what you what you miss in your childhood, you shove down your kid's throat kind of thing. So his kids were overeducated, but, um, you know, that guy, he was like, he was the first, like, BJJ fanatics owes their business to him because he was the first one doing correspondent courses in wrestling. Wow. Yeah, he was a trailblazer. He reminded me a lot of a lot of he reminded me a lot of William Muldoon in ways like that, where he yeah. wasn't just dominant in the ring and in the sport. He's somebody who saw the outside angles. He saw the business side of yeah. things. He saw a longevity career outside of just wrestle, 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 die. And he yeah. and he also utilized the appropriate amount of showmanship and theatricality and character work to 
optimize the earning potential of being the grappler that he was because guaranteed we wouldn't be talking about him today if he had just come out there straight laced and not played the old farmer burns gimmick you know well well you know that gimmick was like he, he did had a match and and it was you know so you have to understand like uh you know evan what i love about martin burns okay is from my own particular interest in catch as catch can and you know like i'm really into the the history is is one thing and it's interesting i think i mean nick i think you smoke me at this point because you're like way deep down the rabbit hole um you know a lot of my historical stuff was like 10 years ago but on on the technique side i'm way down on that because i've just tried to seek out all these people firsthand and and model and mimic what the hell they, they had and what i love about martin burns is that he was truly like the integration, in my opinion, of like the American and the British style of catch as catch can, yeah. and 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 he just really, really was well thought out in his approach to it. Like if you read his his books on catch and his his educational manuals, I mean he's really actually very very deep and and he's a good communicator. So. He's just brilliant, man. I really, he's, a, he's a fascinating character. And you're going to be fascinated by him as we talk about this man's life, this man's career, this man's pretty much everything. And another thing that we should all be excited about, this is technically the first episode of season two. We've made it an entire what? year with this damn show. I have no idea how that has happened, but here we are. We've done a year of this. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere unless you want us to go somewhere. Send your hate mail to our inboxes today. But for today, we are going to be talking about Martin Burns. And Martin Burns was born in a log cabin, as cliche as it sounds, in Cedar County, Iowa on February 15th, 1861. He was the third of seven children born to Irish immigrants, Michael and Mary. Those are the most stereotypical Irish immigrant names. So yeah, we're just- Now, now this is important. Mary comes from a long line of strongmen. Yep, yeah, she, she, she did come from a strong carnival route. Like this, this was in his blood. And the dad was already a wrestler. Like Big Martin Burns was already a wrestler. He was wrestling in Ireland prior so i mean this kid was like designed for this purpose both you know genetically spiritually in every single way this man's life feels a lot more like destiny than happenstance oh yeah i mean the backstory of farmer burns a log cabin in cedar Isle. was it a cedar log cabin i'm picturing some lincoln logs maybe <laughs> and he grew up during the civil war which as we have previously discussed led to a boom in wrestling as it spread westward through army camps and later trains and carnivals he was a wrestling prodigy from an early age having his first pro match at the age of eight Technically, he was pro because he won 15 cents as the yeah. prize for throwing his rival. Who was two years older. Yep, exactly. In an interview for the June 14th, 1918 edition of the Perth Amboy Evening News, he looked back on that fondly and said, It was every cent I had in the world. After I had pinned Jimmy's shoulders to the ground and pocketed my 30 cents, I decided it was a pretty easy way to earn money. Since then, I've always been ready for a match. Imagine being at that age and like, you kind of get into like a, a backyard, you know, street scuffle for, for 30 whole cents to put in your pocket. And you're like, this is what I'm doing. 
Yes, I'm, I've been to Thailand, old chap. That sort of thing goes down from time to time. Yes. I assume you mean the boxing, not the thing with like the ping pong balls being fired uh, across oh, yeah, the room. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. Wink and nod. Yes, all of the above. Yes, Chung. No, but it, it just shows that he's been, you know, he was trained and had sort of both the nature and the nurture perfect storm to create a, you know a guy who would create a legacy in grappling. Because we, we talk about this a lot with guys from this era. They grew up in an era where wrestling was just a default folk sport, folk activity. This there, is there was no swiping left or right. There was no Xbox. There was no, I mean, there was no screens. Yeah, we didn't. We what did. you did is you bet. That's what people did for fun. They're like, I bet I could flick the booger further than you. I mean, they bet on every fucking goddamn thing. And that's what's fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're all of the generation still where, you know, we grew up not having, uh, you know, like an Xbox 360 or the Internet or all these things. It's like we went down to the, uh, you know, to the the, the dirt hills on the edge of town and rode bikes in crazy ways and then challenged each other to to fights. And and we just came home bloody and battered. And that's just what life was. This was that, but without, you know, uh, the the antibiotics, if you happen to gash your leg. You you couldn't get a tetanus shot for stepping on a rusty nail. It, It was that. Then you just add on, you know, the possibility of permanent disability and death. But hey, that makes everything a little more exciting, right? I mean, you had to send a text message by horse. (laughs) Well, this is the fucked up thing. They had text messages, but it was by Morse or horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, capital. Capital and lowercase, old chap, yes. But as much as he saw his future in the wrestling business, tragedy struck early for him when his father died when Martin was only 11 years old, leaving him to support his family by working on a farm for $12 a month. So that is a hell of a blow. This wasn't a day where there were social programs or this is that. It's like, oh, I'm 12. Well, I guess I, I have to go work hard or join the army so my, my family could eat. It just fell upon him. Nothing you can do about it. He went to work on the farm at a very young age. But one thing that did help with that, as we've you'll remember from guys like Evan, uh, Evan Lewis, that working on a farm at a young age, particularly in these days, turns you into a physical specimen very, very quickly, because there is a difference between that weightlifting gym strong and that like farm boy tendon strength strong. You know, where it's like you you where you lock up with a dude. You know, I remember you know in judo and jiu-jitsu tournaments where a guy like you'll tie up with like a guy who's twenty years older than you, but he gets a grip on that gi, and you realize, oh, this guy's been moving refrigerators for thirty years, and there's no escape for me. Yeah, my uh, so. One of the things that I try, so my, my, my mom, who lives in the house with me now, I just moved her in, she's like 78, but uh, she grew up on a farm. She was one of 13 kids, and she was the one who actually got me into wrestling when I was four, and she was from Nebraska, a big, big wrestling state, and uh, I just always remember, and this is, honestly, this is so crude, but when before I had to retire because of my uh, carotid dissection, one of the things that I would always tried to do when I wrestled is I always had these memories of my grandfather having to actually wrestle the animals on the farm. Totally, like wrestling the hogs and stuff. And I will tell you something. When you wrestle a hog with the intent to bite its balls off, because that's what he... I actually saw this shit. Like, 
That's how he would neuter him. Oh my is god! He would wrestle him down and bite the fucking balls off. Is that like a? Did he eat him? No, or he spit. He spit him out. Is this a dominance thing? No, no. Fucking it's like savage. that's how he, he'd not neuter the fucking hog. <laughs> the beast. This is like brutal, but. I remember like what it took for him to fucking hold that fucking pig down, and that's what I would. Yeah. That's what I would take That'll when I would go wrestle because it's like, you know, I think a lot of people, especially now with jujitsu, wow, people are so much like flow and all. totally, dude. I'm like fucking like I'm gonna control this motherfucker because he's gonna either get away and I'm gonna have to work ten times harder. You know, or if I'm not controlling him, he's gonna buck his head or kick at me or something like that. So. You know, that farm strength is, like, legit real. Totally. Legit real. Yes, absolutely. The conditioning from not only just the animals, but, like, fucking bailing hay. Bailing hay, burning trash, having to even just go pick... Pick the eggs from chickens every morning for your breakfast. I was kind of hoping you're physical. Yeah, you're just everything you're doing, you're working for it. I was hoping you were to say pick the eggs from the egg tree, kind of hoping maybe you didn't know where they came from. Oh, yeah. yeah, And and the other thing is it also teaches you a tenacity that is hard to replicate because if you are working on a farm, particularly in the late 1800s, you don't get to say, you know what, I'm kind of tired today. I'll I'll work harder tomorrow. It's like, no, you have to do your 12 hours of labor or it all goes terribly wrong. You have you got like you're not gonna let that because that's money and yeah. that's food and it's like you're 12 years old you're the man of the house now you gotta step fuck, up and that's handle beautiful. that shit that's yeah and that's the way it was back then man it was that's why there was summer vacation in schools so kids could help out on the farm that's right I mean that's the you know yeah, that's a different so style of sleep, life you know sleep in till 10 o'clock and and go fucking smoke weed all day. It was fucking... So they actually were busting ass on the farm. That's a great point. And not just the the ability to get that farm boy strength, to learn the tenacity of working till the job is done, no matter how much you want to tap out. He also put himself in a position at a young age to wrestle grown men. Again, once again, this is just what people did when there was nothing else to do. It was have a beer and, and wrestle. And the young Martin Burns, he was woefully outmatched in the strength department, even he though he was very strong for his size. So the young Martin Burns focused on his technique and strategies to bring down the bigger men. And that combination of conditioning and intellect would define his life and career. Uh, we, we, everybody here has been in competitive grappling matches and, and, and or MMA. And I always talk about how there's, you know, you can be, you have to be more skilled, more conditioned or stronger but you you have to be two of those three things. Like if you you can be you can have better wind and better technique to beat a stronger guy. You can have you can be stronger and have more conditioning to beat a more technical guy. But you have to have two of those three things, and that's where he really honed his craft. He's like, I will be able to mentally put together a strategy and a technical plan to pick you apart, and I will have the endurance and strength for my size to do that over the course of the next 45 minutes if needed. So if you outweigh me by 40 pounds, well, guess what? I'm just going to wear you down. I'm going to be like that Komodo dragon chasing you across the aisle after I bit you once. Eventually, you're going to tire out, and you are going to be all mine. Yeah, he, he talks about that in that, uh, that correspondence course about like breaking people mentally like he has like he was really big on that and that's why he was such a conditioning freak was he could just fucking just ride your shit until you're done like you and a lot of guys wouldn't come back for the second fall yeah well you know you know those conditioning guys they get off on being able to push hold their hand in the flame longer than the next person 
They can push on that treadmill, and the moment you you break and you quit, they turn it up that extra notch, and that's how they 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 get their rock. They're very, you know, that's a that's a gnarly. Chongo don't kink shame, but some people are into some really really mean shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been in that position where it's like, okay, I'm completely gassed, but that guy has to be just as tired as me. Oh, he's not. Oh God damn it! Yeah, no, and that, it, it, that it, is so. That's the way you've lost. Yeah, I mean, yeah and I did. That's, there that's are very few game. things that can break somebody. That. And like, if you hit somebody with their your best shot, and it doesn't get the job done, and they're able to smile and come forward, that and just the realization that they have way more in the tank left than you do, those are the two things that break people more than anything else in terms of like instant psychological avalanche in a fight where it's just over at that point, and you see somebody fold. Well, and, and in the, the context of that it, time, you have to remember, oh, yeah, dude, some of these matches literally went 12 hours. 12 hours, dude. I can't even fucking sleep for 12 hours. Yeah, we, we've, <laughs> right. we, like, we, what the fuck? Yeah, we've talked about matches where at the end they go to a draw because the venue owner turned the lights off and told everyone to go home at 3 a.m. Yep. Yeah. Oh, you ever wonder what the, like, the, the, the secondary people involved, like do they have like lunch breaks or is there like a shift for the ref or anything? You know, these are the things I wonder. <laughs> They're sitting there like, at what point is the ref like, and another lesson that he learned working with grown men who drank smoke and gambled late into the night avoid vice of any kind because it affected the body and the mind in ways that made his older larger opponents vulnerable in competition because he would see these men who would be grappling and doing things and they'd run out of wind because they were uh, smoking they'd be real sloppy because they were drinking they would get up in the morning and not have the wherewithal to keep training because they were hung over people who have gambling addictions tend to be very compulsive and therefore will make take bigger risks in a match than a guy who will be able to be more conservative and wants to to wear you down so this is another crazy smart thing that he picked up at that age one of the things that i i saw in the life work of farmers burns which is like a biography basically you know is that along that line what he originally noticed according to this writer was that they were they were that he was better he, he had a harder time with the guys like a week before payday. <laughs> yeah, right. Because there was a legitimate the, the desperation. Day, but the day, the, yeah, and they're hungry. Yeah, they were legitimately they're hungry, hungry and they, so wanted, like that, one yeah, they wanted that win. money. They yeah, money on the line. They're fighting. But for then money. after yeah. payday, he was like, "Yeah, no problem." Because not only are they not hungry, but they're also drinking. They're also smoking. Yeah, they're the and that, that kind of I think is where he started to put wow. together this as like a general health strategy. For wrestling, you know. Yeah, it's it's the the eventual like demise of so many great fights, right? It's the it's the opening montage of Rocky Three, right? You go from the hungry lion to the fed lion, and you're on the right. You're at the you're the top Dude. of the food chain, and all of a sudden your picture's on mugs, and you're Dude. you don't have to worry about buying a beer anywhere you go, and and it's and it becomes. It becomes, Not, it, it becomes, becomes almost a burden to train as opposed to the thing that is becomes, going to set, be your salvation, and it becomes that flip of mentality. Yeah, we all it's, saw we all saw Rocky Three. <laughs> it's <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I think that's a lot of a lot of you, you could say that Tyson had a thing like that. You could say that 
uh, you know, in John Jones, there's a lot of guys who got to that point where it's like, okay, I have ascended to a certain level through this discipline, and it's like I've almost earned the right to enjoy myself or the spoils of victory, right? Like Conan, right? Like you eventually get to the point where it's eventually the the hungry lion doesn't it it will surpass the the better lion because he's hungry if the lion's full you know these guys get to the top of the game and i've seen it like with rampage from when when breaking in and we're hungry and we're literally fighting for rent and trying to make you know right make enough gas money to get to practice and stuff like that to where it's like I could go to practice or I could go do a movie and make way more money for way less effort, not have to worry about making weight and stuff like that. And you start getting all these vices pulling at you and every door in the world See, is open think, to you. I think and that's the challenge, right? Is like once you become a pro athlete, you've got it like you really and, and it I, I see it less in like combat sports. I see more kind of a discipline maybe in like these bigger team sports, and I'm not sure what the dynamic is there, but you look at somebody like, say, like a Kobe Bryant, who is famous for his work ethic. Yeah. Dude, he was in the gym, like two hours before practice started, like in a like in a deep sweat, like already just like sure. balls deep in a fucking hard workout. You know what I mean? And like, that's the, like, how do you keep that hunger, Yeah. right? And once you become a pro athlete, You've got it like, you really, and, and it, I, I see it less in like combat sports. I see more kind of a discipline maybe in like these bigger team sports. And I'm not sure what the dynamic is there, but you look at somebody like say like Kobe Bryant, who is famous for his work ethic. Yeah. Dude, he was in the gym like two hours before practice started. Like in a deep, like in a deep sweat, like already just like sure. balls deep in a fucking hard workout. You know what I mean? And like, that's the like. How do you keep that hunger? Yeah. Right. We're kind of getting we're kind of getting lost in the weeds here. Uh, we're going to bring it back to the story of, of of Martin Burns, because Martin, at the age of nineteen, finally began his proper wrestling career with a draw against David Graft after a two-hour, nineteen-minute draw. Going back to those. Those those long what a matches. Bitch. What a bitch! You work what, for two what, hours and twenty minutes, what, and you what get was a the draw. Resulting mechanism to, to elicit the draw at that particular time. I'm stand. not sure. I couldn't find any more details than just that's what it was. That sucks. Like a draw that's sucks. Brutal, sucks. Dude. The only thing worse than a draw is a two-hour and nineteen-minute draw. We're a yeah. <laughs> and his next match. His second match, he lost a decision to Henry Clayton in 1886. And if you wonder who, who the heck is Henry Clayton? I kind of wondered the same thing. I did not know this until I found that article. That is the actual birth name of Evan Strangler Lewis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, see, what, what, what was the, what was the reason that that Strangler Lewis wasn't going by that name and that moniker yet? I'm not sure. I, I couldn't find any motivations for why he was, uh, you know, he went by Evan Lewis and moved away from his, his original name. Might have been just to protect his uh, privacy. It might have been to... So this wasn't a regional thing. This was more before he took on that name. Yeah, exactly. Okay. This was, this wasn't like, uh, you know... you know, working du- under a different... Yeah, this wasn't like, you know, Duncan McLeod being like, oh, I'm just a furniture.
furniture salesman from <laughs> Omaha or, or Frank Gotch being Frank Kennedy. It wasn't anything yeah. like that. It was, I feel like it was probably him just trying to separate himself from his, uh, you know, from, from his, uh, you know, showbiz side. Maybe it's, he was such a son of a bitch. He didn't want uh, people tracking him back to his hometown and putting a bullet in his head. Who the hell knows? Yeah. But that was how that rivalry began. I wish I knew more about it, but that's all I could find on that subject. But here we are, learning that Evan Lewis was a gimmick name that inspired another gimmick name decades later with Ed Strangler Lewis, and setting up another uh, rivalry. This is when, in 1887, Martin Burns lost a decision to Tom Connors. And the fear of being strangled, so which we often see because it happened a lot when competing against Clayton, Lewis, whatever. People were losing to chokes, and they weren't just losing to chokes. They were losing badly to chokes because half the time the referee didn't know what the hell was going on and lets people get choked way fucking longer than what they were supposed to be doing. So he started exercising to build his neck muscles to the point that he would later do exhibitions, hanging himself from a noose while whistling Yankee Doodle Dandy as a carnival trick. No, he wouldn't just hang. He'd do a six-foot drop. Yep. He, he would be like he would like properly lynch himself with a rope around his neck to demonstrate his massive neck strength because he developed that pretty much going you know what I lost via via chokehold that will never happen again I'm going to build a monster neck that cannot be choked he was a, he was a weirdo like in a good way like he was a total weirdo like you look at like um, you know everybody watches now Hicks and Bree- with his breathing exercises and all this shit I mean Farmer Burns, he had this other thing. So he super developed his neck. He could do that. He would drop six foot in a noose Ugh. and be all right. And he would do it like as a gimmick, like it was a show. Um, but he had this other thing. So he was into like deep breathing way before Wim Hof, man. He was in these breathing exercises and he could expand his chest. So he could basically like, you'd get like a, a tape measure, right? And he'd get to full fucking like, ex- like expansion. And they'd take the tape measure, and then he'd collapse himself, and you could put, like, a top hat wow. in between the old. And what would happen is, like, somebody would get him in, like, a like a double under or something, and he'd just expand his chest. Totally. And the guy's hands, he couldn't hold the, the grip. Because this is a time when a lot of the physical culture, the way people became strong, and circus strongman carny tricks, the Venn diagram was almost a circle because that is a carny strongman thing the way they put the chain around their their chest and they inhale until it, it pops off and you know i read farmer burns's book on physical culture the breathing was very impressive because sometimes you look at old exercise manuals and you're like oh look at what these assholes thought could make them strong he was almost ddp yoga-esque where he combined the breathing with the exercising and made it a very big overlap of of how your body moves in 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 accordance to how your breathing as well which clearly paid off dividends in how strong he was and how long he could wrestle. And one little tragic thing, which of course made me giggle because I'm a bad person. In 1912, a wrestler from St. Paul named George Lofter died trying to attempt the same thing. So imitation is the highest form of flattery so long as it doesn't end with uh, pallbearers escorting you to a hole in the ground don't copy my shit (laughs) 
but that, that's something Don't that, do this at home, kids. Yeah, yeah well, really. it made me think about, like, there was a, a magician who tried to do a Houdini trick. Like, Houdini had this trick where he was, uh, you know, buried alive, and yeah. he was supposed to escape, and even he couldn't pull it off. And he was like, oh, that's too dangerous. I'm not going to do that. Somebody tried to replicate that on TV and died a suffocating, horrible death. Oh. So sometimes when you see your heroes do something cool, don't try this at home, kids. Yeah, thank don't try goodness, this, this at home. before the days of TikTok. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> the, farmer burns, the farmer burns trend right after right after the tide The tide challenges, right? Some dummy's like trying to hang himself. So, but I mean, what a madman to be like, you know what? My neck is almost impervious to the choke, but I need to I need to think bigger, darling. What can I what's the most insane thing I could possibly defend in terms of it? I know. And actually, if you think about it, it's kind of like a proto gi kind of thing, right? Oh, dude. Because he's using a rope, like, you know, because nothing can stop you like, stop you like a cloth, the way that it, that it circularly cuts off the arter- the arteries, you know? So that is pretty amazing that he could do that. And another amazing thing he did, this is where he kind of took his first big step into superstardom when he visited the city of Chicago in the spring of 1889, and Burns saw a sign advertising a prize of $25 to anyone who could last 15 minutes with Jack Karkeek and or Evan Strangler Lewis. Burns showed up at the Olympic Theater in his farmer overalls and was introduced as Farmer Burns. So a gimmick was born nearly the same way Spider- It was a comedian who gave him the name, by the way. Yep, and he, his gimmick was born nearly the same way Spider-Man's was in the original movie. <laughs> wow. So, okay. And, and he didn't beat them, but he got the money because he lasted the 15 with both guys, which uh, th- that was, like, so fucking mind-blowing back then. That yeah. was, like... That was like beating a Gracie in the night. Sure, it was sure. Like, like, what the fuck? Okay. This kid totally did this. So he blew, and then and then that comedian, like he he came in. He's like, in what's Oval's. your name, kid? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but he didn't have a good one, so he kept calling him Farmer. That's. And then that like is where he became so. The star. Th- so this is now the second time that him and Lewis have gone head. Yep. To head. So Lewis had beat him before, and okay. then this time, and this was when uh, he was you know when Evan Strangler Lewis was really kind of hitting the the, the top of the mountain yeah. because in March fourteenth, eighteen eighty seven, uh, he had beaten Joe Acton for the title, but however. 15 minutes was not enough for Lewis to throw Burns. So the farmer won the challenge, the cash, and was praised as a hero in the sports press the next day. Kind of a combination of this was a legitimate, fantastic achievement. And also, as we have explored, people did not like Evan Lewis. Yeah, totally. He was the heel. See, See, that makes me, okay, putting on my Booker hat, right? And like, kind of like reverse diagnosing this whole thing, it makes me think like, okay, he saw Evan Strangler Lewis on the poster, and it's like, hey, I beat that guy, but that wasn't his name. That makes me think maybe Evan didn't know that he was so confident that he was going to win the first time, so he went under the name that he, like, if I lose, it won't be under the Strangler Lewis moniker, right? And then he's like, he sees him on the poster later, and he's like, okay, you can play that game. You want to switch it up? I'm going to switch it up too. Hey, Give me your give me your overalls. We're about to we're about to work this guy. We've all asked another man for their overalls in, in our I've lives. done it in the back of the theater. <laughs> but after this, 
Burns became a legitimate wrestling star, and he was traveling with carnivals, and he was on the burlesque circuit. He took on the greatest wrestlers of the day, and all comers during the carnival-style Farmer's Challenge. If you want a deeper look at this type of match, listen to our episode on carnivals, but here are the basics. Though he weighed between 165 and 175, he was known for finishing off men 50 to 100 pounds heavier than him. He was an absolutely fantastic and turning submissions into pinfalls by using hammer locks and double wrist locks to maneuver their shoulders to the stage. That's something I kept seeing over and over again in articles talking about his matches, is he would get those submissions, but he wasn't cranking them, he was just using them to turn somebody over for the pin. Which yes. is something I, like, because, you know, I came from a, a shoot, uh, you know, shoot style as opposed to the catch style. Like, with those pins, that made a lot of sense once I read about it, but it also kind of shows his character that he wasn't there trying to rip people's arms off. He was just maneuvering their bodies so that they would have to go along. He wasn't mean-natured, you know? By all accounts, when you read about him, he was actually a pretty solid dude, like a nice guy, but he was competitive as hell. And like, if it was, if there was money on the line, there's yeah. no way he was going to lose. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the very gentlemanly thing to do is to use the submission to put the person in position to defeat them without breaking their stuff. But see, this is what you have to understand. Like those days, so you know, like many things, like think about free enterprise. Like so. Back then, you had a lot of free enterprise and very few regulations. Well, modern amateur catches catch can wrestling, which is folk style wrestling in the states. Yeah. Dude, you have so many rules, man. Like all these different things, uh, back points and times and riding, all this other yeah. stuff in writing time. Yeah. Like there's so many rules now. Well, back then there weren't a lot of rules. And what? But one of the things that you could do because it was the pin or make the guy concede, like give just yeah. yell. Wasn't like you could tap or you could scream or whatever. But a lot of times what they would do is it, instead of tapping, you would roll to your shoulders to get out. Yeah. I mean, that's – I remember being in high school wrestling and basically being in moves like what is essentially like a mounted guillotine and letting myself get pinned because it was – Awful. It was it, – that was the way out of this hole that I had no other way out of, you know, the banana split. I can think yeah. – I actually won a match in high school with a banana split because of that. You get these – the submission is utilized not to get the tap, but the, to concede in the positioning to allow yourself to be pinned. Or even in one of the most famous matches of all time, Gotch and Hackenschmidt 2, where Gotch had Hackenschmidt in a toehold. Toehold, to turn him over. Yeah, right? and, and, exactly. and, and Hackenschmidt's like, don't break my leg, don't break my leg, because he was so gun-shy with his hurt knee that he just put his shoulders down to that's avoid totally. the crank. That's it. And that's, you know, in a way but almost... See, people don't understand that today. Like, that's a subtle kind of thing that you have to be a fucking wrestling nerd and a fucking grappler to yeah. actually understand like you know what I mean like yeah. it just was a different way of tapping and yeah, and, and really heck was. even in those days people didn't understand it because that in many ways was the match that killed pro wrestling as a superstar legitimate sport because everybody saw him do that and went it's a work what it could it be a hippodrome it Pe sucks that, that the one moment where it was like the most real thing that could have happened between them, and people, and that was the thing that people held on and used as the, the yeah, the, as as though if they were going know. to hippodrome that match, they wouldn't have made it way the fuck more yeah, entertaining, totally. yeah. 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 bigger fucking finish. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. yeah, you definitely wouldn't have exposed the finish like that. But yeah, it's it's really interesting though. But yeah, man, I'm excited. It's almost like 
Farmer Burns reversed his game off of everything that Stranger Lewis was doing. He's like, oh, he's gonna be a dick. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. be a gentleman. Yeah, and not get strangled. I'm also not. I'm yeah, gonna, yeah. I'm gonna be able to withstand a fucking yeah, totally. Like he's six man. I'm not gonna let drop. that guy. Yeah, he's. A, you know who he's thinking about when he's training for that. Right. And and that. Speaking of Lewis, uh, a mutual opponent of both of them uh, he faced off at a carnival show in troy new york on may 13th 1891 when he took on sorokichi matsuda we talked wow. a little bit about this match during our matsuda series who had put out an open challenge matsuda was the first japanese wrestler in america and was famous for his matches against muldoon robler and lewis and burns pinned him inside four minutes i do have to add an asterisk to this because it seemed that the illness that killed matsuda soon after had reduced him to a shadow of his former self by then. I don't want to take anything away from Burns, but it does have to be said. Yeah, and he was like, we're talking again, like, you know, pre-antibiotics, just like, I don't remember specifically from the episode, but I remember it was just gruesome, and a lot of these guys die in the most Oh, you know, Oregon Trail-esque ways you could possibly Oh, imagine. yeah, we're, we're a year into this, and when we talk about wrestlers from this period and a little bit after, I think Hackenschmidt is the only one that really lived to be, like, a ripe old age. Yeah, like, rode off into the sunset. No, Farmer Burns lived Oh, he, yeah, 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 no, he does, too. Yeah. Yeah. Burns, we haven't got there right. yet, though. Okay, yeah, no spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah, yeah, no spoilers. We haven't so, got so, there yet. But you raise a good point. I mean, even as late as Ed Lewis, Robert Friedrich, yeah. had trachoma... Oh, right, oh, which is yeah. an eye bacteria or something like. Yeah, it's 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 an eye disease, which is weird because from the mats. Yeah, it's from the mats. But here's the thing: like, I, I'm very curious about, and we'll talk about that a lot when we get to to that that period in time. Because yeah, he had this 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 illness which causes your eyelids to turn to sandpaper and scratch your eyes up. But it was very curable <laughs> at that time. He just had some weird strain that nobody understood, and like you know, he couldn't shake for all his life, even though he was married to a doctor. And during this period, uh, Burns, according to both legend and uh, you know what is what is written down, that between 1890 and 1893 he never lost a single fall. And on March 2nd, 1893, Strangler Lewis beat Ernst Rober, who had essentially inherited the world championship from William Muldoon upon his retirement, to claim the title as his own. And this setup the third match against the increasingly famous and dangerous Martin Burns. Burns camp had to pony up a thousand dollars to make the match happen, which explains why it didn't happen until 1885. That's a lot of money for even the most uh, successful of carnies to scramble together in, uh, for a purse. Yeah, very Mayweather-esque of old Modoon to, to keep, the, keep the belt out of the, the proper, the proper contenders grasp to have a chance at it because he he anointed his protege to be the heir apparent champion and then ducked burns essentially right and and made this cast stipulation and made it so that he couldn't get the match and you only do that if you're worried about losing and it got even worse because Lewis had been battling tuberculosis and nearly died of the illness. He recovered enough to return to training and did his best to be ready yeah, for the he farmer. Was never after that. He was. Never oh no! Absolutely not. Because that uh, was like. I mean, after that, he's just everybody. He fought tuberculosis, and then you're like, yeah. you know, no, nobody who Doc Holliday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, nobody who watches old westerns will think that a man is going to be uh, competitive after his bout with tuberculosis because yeah, totally. i mean that was a that was something that you know i mean now it's something to be cleared up back then it was 
you know, all they really did is like, well, just go to a drier climate and yeah. you might live yeah. an extra five years. Yeah, totally. yeah, go 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 live in the mountains, go live in the desert, and you know, just cough up blood when uh, when when required. But he did his best to recover, but he was still taking on Farmer Burns in a three out of five falls catches catch can three rules out of match. Five. <laughs> yeah, Fuck that. yeah, three out of five. Yeah. While you're like coming back from tuberculosis. <laughs> I mean, that's like another level of tough. And yeah, yeah, you're not even that kidding. Today. Like, there's so few people. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's like, I mean, that that really does put it on like the, you know, like got shot 15 times and carried my buddy across the battlefield tough. Because, yeah, tuberculosis, look it up. It is not a not yeah. a, not a fun way to go. I would Let alone Stranger Lewis's grandkid and get the, when I was your age, just go down the hill. You got no fucking snow. Yeah, you got to do all your chores, kid. Yeah, the, the odds were not in his favor because Burns showed up in nearly perfect physical condition, ready for a career-defining match. Lewis, who spent a year recovering from a near-death experience, weighed in at 200 pounds and not solid muscle. The Omaha Bee called him fat as a prize pig. I mean, just think about the difference. And that's the one thing that I will speculate on is very rarely do we get these guys truly crossing paths when they're both peaking and out there. Oh, yeah. No, so this is, this is my big beef. Yeah. And this is not to change. It's still in the in the Farmer Burns <laughs> universe. But, you know, like, I'm a huge uh, Tom Jenkins fan. Like, to me, his life story, we were, before the podcast, we were talking about, like, how many of these great wrestlers would make for good movies, you know, like a yeah. Gangs of New York style, like, film. And uh, th- th- that issue was never more blatant to me than like the Tom Jenkins, Frank Gotch rivalry. Frank Gotch being the protege of Farmer Burns. And uh, Jenkins, it was just that, I think Tom Jenkins beat Farmer Burns, if I'm not mistaken. Jenkins was a badass, right? But he was just older. And so like he was, as as there was just like this kind of trajectory, and I'm sorry for you people listening. I'm I'm making I'm talking with my hands, but it's like as as uh, Gotch was coming up, you know, like Jenkins was coming down. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was like it was like win 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 loss 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 loss. You know, like yeah, it's just oh, yeah. that aging well, star like, versus like the, Kobe like, and Jordan. Coming. You never saw them in their prime against right. each other. And it, you know, it, it, same thing here with how all awesome of these would guys. it be to see? Yeah, it, it just the the once in a generation talents truly are once in a generation, especially back then. Because again, one guy is jumping off of a of a gallows to to break, you know, to defend the chokehold, and the other guy is Doc Holiday in his way being your Huckleberry <laughs> with TB yeah. to have one last gunfight. And he was in bad shape. I mean, there's no denying that. But despite being out of shape and half dead from recovering from tuberculosis, Lewis was still very dangerous. He went after Burns aggressively and immediately and eventually used a hammerlock to secure a pin. The second fall was a little more... That's crazy. Well, but also it makes sense because you know that you don't have the energy. So you're going right? to go gonna, you, That guy is... That, yeah, you yeah. got a blitzkrieg. You got you to gotta turn it into while well, you still have I, resources. I, I would also love to know uh, how hard he was cranking that uh, Oh, that, I'm that sure. Hold. With everything yeah. he's oh, got. Sure, yeah, he, yeah, yeah he was trying to break it. Yeah, 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 so that, you, you fuck up that shoulder. Now well, he knows. Yeah, he knows. Three out of five falls, too, Mary. He's got to... Yeah, okay, I can... Yeah. 
dude. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking about. Because I'm like, man, if I knew I was, uh, yeah. I was like, I, there was no way I'm last in the course. I'm like, yeah. well, I'm, a, I'm gonna hold on to that until the ref has to fish hook me to get me off of this yeah, guy. No, and that right. totally makes sense, though, to me that he, if he was gonna be successful, it would be fast and early. Yeah. Because that's the only chance he's like. It's going to be law of diminishing returns of probability after that, so that makes sense that he came out hot like that. Yeah, and the second fall did start off a little more strategic, a little more conservative, but the action picked up as Strangler Lewis secured a half Nelson that Byrne reversed, and the farmer landed a quick throw that left Lewis dazed. Burns attacked and threw him again before pitting him at the 25-minute mark. So you think about that already. Fucking 25 minutes? <laughs> the, and the, that's your second fall. That's your one-to-one. -one. That's a one-to-one -one fall. So they they have now gone almost Jeez. half an hour, and they are so only... So it ain't going to go three. <laughs> yeah, it's going to yeah, it's it's at least one four. To, that's uh. insane. Because it's best of three. That this is So when I, I helped put on a show in 2018, and it was... I was helping somebody else, but it was my the rule set that I came up with. And this was before Shoe Pro Rules, right? And we were doing best two of three falls. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is what happens when you draw? Yeah. And it just kept going. And this, the guy who won, Kerr Jacobs, ended up wrestling like 19 falls that night. He spent, <laughs> he spent 70 minutes wrestling. Because it's just win by two and you can't get so that then, two. So two then what happens advantage. is, is yeah. that like you wrestle kind of almost not to win. Yeah. You wrestle not to lose. And then, and then it just goes on it for sucks. fucking ever. Yeah, and that's where, again, like you talked about, the over, over. The beauty kind of of this is, even though it's a war of attrition, eventually somebody's going to break. But, man, they've only gotten to the second well, fall. So I had to switch, and, and I'm sorry to, to hijack this for a second, but with that kind of stipulation, it literally could go fucking forever. I had to switch it from best two or three to just best of three. Yeah. So you know it's only going to go three. It's, it's crazy to see how these things play out when you actually get them going. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, because I mean, these guys have already been going at it for half an hour, and they are now only one to one in a t in a three out of five. <laughs> and brutal. so, refocused between falls, Burns came out hard in the next frame to get a fall in one minute, uh, and then Lewis. He did manage to catch Burns with his dreaded stranglehold in the fifth, but had it over Burns' face, and after a few minutes, he managed to escape with a badly bleeding nose. Burns, Burns went at Lewis hard, picking him up several times to set up slams, but Lewis would bridge out on his head to avoid it. He dropped Lewis and secured the hammerlock, which he used to turn the strangler over and pinned him at the 10-minute point. Dude, I mean, for and a guy with this tuberculosis, is, you're still putting up a What a, what a mean fight. bastard, and but also it shows his character that he basically broke his nose with a cross face, or at least bled yeah, him yeah. from squeezing that, that face lock, and he still had the character to not crank it and pin him with the chicken wing. Yeah, because we've all been yeah, in that right. position where, yeah, where somebody gets that choke on you, but that's not on your chin, so and they go cranking. after, so you're like going after the eye socket or the jaw or the nose. I remember Bart Vale doing that to me once at a seminar where he had the, the blade of his elbow right across my eye socket, and I, I have never tapped, catch I have never tapped faster <laughs> and harder and with more desperation in my life. And, and you're also going to come back faster and it's like, because the one thing about grapplers and, and, a, and a, a winning wrestling mentality is whatever they do to you, you up it immediately yeah. and you come back harder right then. That's why you can never wrestle half speed for longer than about 30 seconds. Yeah, because it's just going to turn <laughs> into... <laughs> <It's just laughs> <scary. laughs> 
And and at the end of this, because keep in mind, Chicago had been the de facto wrestling hometown for Evan Lewis for years, but the audience was firmly behind Burns. Burns had been training and appearing in Illinois for some time, and Lewis's gruff personality and often brutal, if not dirty, in-ring tactics did little to earn him the love of the fans, and I feel like that's saying it nicely. That, I was just going to say the same thing. That was about his, what are you, his press agent? <laughs> so, yeah, gruff so, attitude? <laughs> There was a headline. It was like, Evan Lewis shows some very technical but very dirty wrestling. <laughs> yeah, that's a, and that's about it. Yeah, that would, That's probably what should be on his tombstone as well. So dirty yeah, technical. Yeah. So when Burns dropped Lewis and secured the hammerlock, turned him over, and pinned him at the 10-minute point of that final fall, 3,000 Chicago wrestling fans, and you heard me, 3,000 Chicago wrestling fans went absolutely apeshit. Lewis went backstage without a word to the crowd, while Evan Lewis's no longer loyal manager, Parson Davies, immediately tried to secure a title shot for his new client, Dan McLeod. He didn't even bother trying to get Lewis a rematch. <laughs> what a dick. Yes. Oh, the, the wrestling business is alive and well, and nothing is new under the sun. That is amazing. But, man, he is just... Strangler Lewis is a tough bastard. He is a true heel... Like He's the like trope, a true heel. Like the trope is, of heel comes from this match. match. This right. matchup is almost like a perfect microcosm of a baby face and a heel. Right. And the way that Chicago blew. It wasn't even that necessary. Because at the end of the day, there's two things that people pay to see more than anything else in the fight game. And this is fighting and wrestling. You either pay to see the guy you want to see get their ass whooped. Or you pay to see your guy. That's the guy or my fighter that I want to see. And sometimes the former can make the latter because Chicago hated Ed Lewis. Everybody hated Ed Lewis. He's a dick. So if you're the guy that beats Ed Lewis, you are a hero. Yeah, yeah. Or Strangler Lewis, I mean, Evan. Evan Lewis. Yeah, yeah Evan Lewis, was, but you are a the, hero. He was the inspiration. Yeah, the quintessential heel of the time, especially everything down to the submission and everything. This is really interesting. It's like the Joker made... Ba this is very Tim Burton Batman right now. <laughs> and he won the title. He beat his, his nemesis, Evan Strangler Lewis. He became the champ, and he did hold on to the title for two years and beat Dan McLeod in May 1897, just like Parson Davies was trying to line up, but lost the rematch and the title at the Indianapolis Grand Opera House on October 26th of the same year. According to the Indianapolis Sun, October 1887 edition, it was one of the best wrestling matches ever witnessed. McLeod won the first fall with a hammerlock and crotch hold in 23 minutes. Burns won the second in 37 minutes with a double, double hammerlock. McLeod secured the title with a half Nelson body hold in 17 and a half minutes. And the like 37 minutes 17 yeah minutes. it's out yeah, like, dude. like wrestlers today are like gassed after three. Oh, dude yeah this the 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 amount of activity in this is just just bananas on an athletic level and the reporter made a point to mention the wild crowd including db shittler who occupied a seat in the right box who was on his feet cheering excitedly and the building nearly shaking from his large frame bouncing around so we got some body shaming in the press of a Maybe the first big fat wrestling fan losing his mind in press history. Shittleburr. Shittleburr. 
Before the match, Tom Jenkins came out and made a challenge to whomever won. Jack Karkeek issued a challenge to either for himself or on behalf of Evan Strangler Lewis. Speaking of strangling, the referee announced that the stranglehold was forbidden, which the audience cheered. Seemed like these were two very gentlemanly combatants, two gentlemanly competitors. I don't feel like that would have been a factor, but it really just kind of nailed home the good sportsmanship, babyface versus babyface nature of this match. Both wrestlers had their corners ready to go. Amongst Burns, second was D.A. McMillian, who you might remember from our Hippodrome episode when he and Burns staged a rivalry across the Midwest and made a lot of money doing so. Unlike many big matches, both men came out in peak physical condition. They circled each other for 10 minutes, looking for an opening, before McLeod caught Burns with a single leg, taking him down. Burns got back to his feet, but was taken down again almost immediately. After 20 minutes of wrestling with nobody in danger, McLeod clearly was working a slow position game to preserve energy, while the farmer was trying to outpace his foe with nonstop attacks. Burns was caught in a McLeod hammerlock, but Burns held a bridge and managed to escape, only to be caught in another hammerlock that forced his shoulders to the mat. After 23 minutes, McLeod was up by one fall, and when they got to their feet, Burns looked visibly tired, something you don't hear very often. Okay, so you take a UFC championship match, and it goes the distance. How long is that? That's 25. That's, that's 25 right there. That's the first yeah, fucking yeah, fall, yeah, and you gotta go back. And they didn't even, during that first fall, they're not getting water breaks. Yeah, they're wrestling it's, it's for the contain, 20. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, one thing we touched on earlier about people missing each other at their peaks. Like you said, this is one of the first times where he's meeting someone who's close to his physical equal. And it's, and it's a different game when you're, when you're racing a Ferrari that has as much horsepower as you do. And they got a 15-minute rest, which can be good and bad, because it's good because you get a breather, bad because your body can stiffen the fuck up after, uh, after that. So they came back out for the second. Burns came out aggressive, and in five minutes caught McLeod with a single leg and took him down. Burns worked to a half Nelson, attempting to turn the challenger and pin him, but twice McLeod escaped. Burns switched to a hammerlock, then McLeod also escaped. McLeod briefly got to his feet before being taken down again, where after a brief exchange of hold and positions, Burns caught him with a hammerlock and turned him for the pin at the 37 minute mark. So we are now one for one, 37 minutes on the second fall. We have been, they've been watching. It's an hour. Yeah, this is over an hour at this point. And these men are not working a a headlock, Greco-Roman slow-paced thing. These guys are going for it. This is a fast-paced action submission match. And they've already been going for an hour, and they're tied at one. See, this is the thing. So, like, when I would talk to guys like Carl Gotch or Billy Robinson, and they'd always, like, laugh at people today like in the UFC and stuff. And and I mean, I'm young and I respect these guys as athletes, but to hear like Billy and Carl be like scoffing, you have to understand that, that when Billy and Carl were young, these were the stories that they were, yeah. uh, their athlete, this is who they were trying to emulate. Guys who were wrestling like 35 or an hour long match, it's like insane. Yeah, it was it was a lot more of the true spirit of like gladiators of Rome because especially when you talk about the lack of sports nutrition, the lack of medicine, the lack of 
physical therapy and lack recovery, of lack of rules, all of those things, and and these wars that go for hours, they will permanently damage these guys' bodies in ways that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. And it's it's a different kind of mentality, I think. A little bit more of a of a true chips in the on the rough. table than a sport. There was a lot more of a, a different layer of this will. It was more like a war for have, money. Have you done a show on like the number of deaths from catch wrestling? We we did a little bit of touching on that in our uh, up and down uh, episode where it's brutal. Yeah, where it's like particularly in England. You know, if you read yeah. uh, Catch, you know the story of Catch. We talked yep. about that book yep. before. Yep. Where you get to these entire sections where it's like. You know, we talked about in our up and down wrestling episode where if you don't know how to fall properly and somebody flips you on the pub floor with a with a monkey flip or a or or a backdrop, it's like you're gonna land on your head and then uh, you know you're just getting uploaded to God's uh, you know fucking Wi-Fi. It's you're 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 gonna make the paper for a reason you didn't want to and. That and you saw so many people getting arrested, but it was so culturally accepted that coroner juries would hardly ever push for conviction. I, I think it was uh, grappling with history who found one which where the jury said the cause of death visitation by God. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, and, that's, and again, that's the the risk these guys were taking when they took these matches. There was no athletic commission, you know, to keep them safe. There was no. You know, taking taking your 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 levels to make sure that you're not you're in your healthy ranges. I mean, Lewis is out there battling tuberculosis, man. Yeah, this, this is, is this is literally this, the wild west of, yeah, of th- th- this is wrestling. The, yeah, this is the days of like bare knuckle boxing, where instead of a water bottle, it was a whiskey bottle in the corner. So I mean, yeah, the sports nutrition really wasn't a a concern. And this is a turning point right here in the match where this feels very cinematic to me because after another 15 minute rest they came out for the decisive third fall and McLeod was described as being very calm and relaxed while Burns was very cagey and anxious in there and when I read that part of the article the 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 people who were there reporting about the match all I could think of was at the end of Return of the Dragon Chuck Norris versus Bruce Lee when when Bruce Lee finally finds his rhythm and you see him just relaxing and getting into the groove (laughs) because yeah we've we've all seen wrestling matches we've all seen fights where boxing matches MMA where you get towards the end of the fight and one guy has kind of got it figured out and the other guy is getting flustered he's getting tired because people who have never been on the mat or in the ring you don't understand how much energy being flustered burns like you can like you, when you start losing on the psychological side of things yeah. all your physical tools start abandoning you yeah fighting to get out of the grave as opposed to throwing the other guy into the grave is a totally oh, different dude. mindset you know 100%. a lot more stress a lot more cortisol a lot more just the mindset of fighting not to lose versus fighting to win and fighting to survive as opposed to fighting to finish your opponent will, will just being in the, it's like like you know it's like money fight you know living paycheck to paycheck versus knowing everything's handled it just it's a different level of exhausting when you're when you can't solve the equation in front of you and that's pretty much what happened in the minds of these two combatants because McLeod 
right out of the gate, caught Farmer Burns several times, but couldn't manage to throw him on his back. Burns would land on his hands and knees and scramble back to his feet until McLeod turned a hammerlock body hold into a crotch hold and slammed Burns. Burns somehow escaped without his shoulders touching the uh, the old the old mattress, but quickly found himself turned with a half Nelson and with all of McLeod's weight on his chest, the champ's shoulders were slowly but surely pushed to the floor until he was pinned, and in 17 minutes the third fall was done, it was over, and Dan McLeod became the new champion. After the match, Burns said, I was thrown fair and square. I think that me and him can throw any two men in the world, and I feel like that's probably true. He also said that he'd take a match against Strangler Lewis, who had been claiming he laid down against Burns for their title match, and Burns pretty much said he'd make sure Lewis couldn't say a damn thing about the outcome next time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he Many wrestling fans and sport journalists called this one of the best matches of all time. I'm not sure if Meltzer was there or how many stars he gave it. Yeah, it's also like, I, I feel like this would have been the greatest tag team of its era if right. tag team in wrestling had been right. a thing. But yeah, what a, what a classy competitor. He, you know, he, he went out with class. He, he, the way he described that was, was all class. The way that, that match played out sounded like a tremendous you know, sportsman-like, you know, competition, and that's good stuff, because at the end of the day, Farmer Burns is one of the most remarkable characters to me because the legitimacy of his wrestling ability combined with his mind for marketing, combined with his mind for the psychology of setting up the fights and booking the fights and, and understanding how to use a work and a shoot to make money and the gimmick with the thing to be the stick, to be the farmer, all those things, and then the, the lineage that he created, like his his tree of disciples is really, he's one of the most important figures in the history of wrestling in America. And this is a point in his career where he started taking a step back from being a competitor to being a trainer. Meanwhile, McLeod was the new American champion and would hold that title for four years before losing it to Tom Jenkins. So Burns is moving on more to his coaching phase of his life. And sometimes a, a, a combatant, a wrestler, a fighter can be known even more as a coach than he was as a fighter, depending on his era. You see guys like Pat Militich, Matt Hume, guys like that who, because of the lack of exposure of their fighting days, become known through their students. But first, let's talk about him wrestling a bear. What? According, oh, yeah. to, according to the Humboldt Independent... And, and he pinned it. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did we... Not talk about Farmer Burns wrestling a bear on a bear episode. Were you saving this? I was holding this one back. Because according to the Humboldt Independent, in 1895, Farmer Burns accepted an offer of $300 a week to tour the country and meet all comers. During this tour in Burlington, Washington, Burns took a bet to wrestle a young husky black bear. The Iowa wrestler won by pin and collected the bet. I couldn't find the direct source, just a lot of I heard this happened and some clippings, so who knows the details. The the the, the match still happened. I mean clearly it was a it was a it was built up as a bit of a work, but he still pinned a fucking yeah, bear got, being an undersized uh, wrestler himself. In in all the bear episode we didn't hear about one person actually pinning the bear. It was just <laughs> right, like, well right. you got the bear down, one guy got the bear down, broke his shoulder. But also like 
you know, this makes me think that they didn't book John Brown. Well, that's what I was about to say, because we just talked about how so many great combatants miss each other on the way up or their way down. You know, you, you yeah. it's so hard to see guys of different eras fully overlap. How do you feel, though, that Farmer Burns would have done against John Brown the Bear? I think John Brown the Bear is, you know, he's the GOAT. I mean, he beat everybody. In his day, you gotta go back and listen to the Bear okay, episode. I will, I will. He, 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 he beat that sheriff. He, uh, he, uh, <laughs> no, he, uh, he beat the park who, ranger. He, he got the the basket. He, he, he worked with Dempsey. Yeah, no. He, <laughs> my he, my question is, why has nobody ever made like a Tekken game, but with like historical fighters, and then they could have a bear like the John unlock? Brown. Yeah, John Brown the Bear. No, but the, the, I. I want a John Brown the Bear T-shirt, but I want to. Li- I would like to think that if he pinned the bear, it wasn't John Brown because they had this whole gimmick where the bear was always booked, and the name for the bear was John Brown, which is just terrifying, right? But that the bear that beat he beat er- the who's who of of the of the of his time and space. So I'm an, although if anybody could pin John Brown, I'd like to think it was Farmer Burns. That sounds wild to me, man. <laughs> I mean, it was a young bear. That He's like, hey, John Browns, you're about to feel like Goldilocks is poor just, <laughs> just right. And losing the title, maybe even beating a bear, kind of became a bit of a hinge, a bit of a, a turn in his career as he hit the downslope. On April 25th, 1899, McLeod and Burns had a rematch that ends in something of a fiasco, according to the Sacramento Record Union. McLeod won the first fall in 31 minutes, Burns won the second in 61 minutes, <laughs> and both were too exhausted to come out for the third. No and shit. It was yeah, yeah, it's a 90-minute match. Yeah. Dude, fuck that. Yeah, but, but it's something where you didn't see that, that early in his career. And, and that's something where it's funny, like now, that would be seen as like the end of Rocky, like this draw of draws between yeah two gods back in those days like they only wrestled for an hour and a half <laughs> whips nerds i mean i would okay i would like just to put the challenge out there somebody needs to just set up a clock like a decently competitive match with like decent guys wrestle a half hour 15 minutes and wrestle an hour just to feel it just to just not even like just to put yourself in their shoes. You well, know, they would die. They would not. They would not last near. You would not. You would not make it to, out of the first round. Old and this yeah. is on like wooden planks. Yeah, this canvas is, yeah, this stretched is old over. school. Yeah, I, I like the closest I ever had was in those like early days of MMA when yeah. I was eighteen. Yeah. And I, there was a twenty-minute time limit, no rounds. I was eighteen, like the peak of testosterone and the peak of like your body recovering. And me and this dude went the full twenty. And I couldn't get out of bed for three days. And that was 20 minutes once. I, I will say this. Imagine eight times. I will say <laughs> this, though. There is a difference. And, it's and it, to be fair to modern fighters, there is a bit of a different mindset when you go into, say, a three, five-minute round fight where it's like I have this much time to expend as much energy and do as much work as possible versus I have to win the war of attrition and there's no determined You have a different athlete, right? And it's a different kind of, it's a different So, so look dynamic. at wrestlers today. Jordan Burroughs. Yeah. Those are three minutes of fucking hell. A monster. Yeah, he's sprinting the mile. He's like sprinting, that, yeah. It's so, so what they're throwing at, it's a different, in it, it's, the, the the rule set makes for the the strategy and the execution to it be changes different. Everything. But yeah, it, that said, 
It's fucking an hour and a half to to be one and one. Yeah, no, it should be on what is what is reasonable to do to the human body. Yeah, next time you watch a movie that is ninety minutes. Think about spending the entirety of that time fighting another person. Yeah, like the non-stop. other best wrestler in the world. Right, the not belt, just another on person. A, on a carpet, like on a stage. Who's conditioning his Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, world. Who's jumping off of, again, he's jumping off of the gallows <laughs> to, to defend his neck. For 90 minutes. Yeah, and, and picking up hogs and shit. <laughs> After years of being a trainer with the Chicago Athletic Association, he opened up his gymnasium in Rock Island, Illinois in 1893, seeking to create a legitimate training system inspired by the German gymnasium style for catch wrestling. In 1899, he defeated a talented up-and-comer by the name of Frank Gotch. You might have heard of him. He was so impressed by Gotch's raw talent that he took him on as a student. We did almost three hours talking about Gotch and his, and his matches with Hackenschmidt. Most likely the best wrestler America produced in that era, maybe ever. It is, it is debatable. And this is one of those things where, yeah, uh, as good as Farmer Burns was, he got to be the direct influence on the guy who picked it up next who might have been even better. You don't see that too often. You know, Usually the great coaches are usually the guys who are only decent trainers because usually the great fighters fight until they completely fall apart and never really pass on their information because their brains don't work so good no more. So yeah. Burns really did tap out at the right time in his career, but his career really wasn't fully over. So he was teaching, he was training. He's the first guy to set up like an organized gymnasium as opposed to it being like you learn tricks here and there, you learn it from your dad, from your uncle. He took what was folk style American catch wrestling and turned it into a curriculum. He's the first guy really to do that. And just and aside from Gotch, other students include the original Man of a Thousand Holes, Earl Haddock, Ra Ralph Percutt, Emil Clank, and Joseph Tootsmont. He is said to have trained over 1,600 students, many of which are worthy of their own episodes by themselves. But his career really wasn't done yet. Uh, according to the Decora Public Opinion, 25th December 1901 in Davenport, Nuridasala, the terrible Turk number two, there were so many terrible Turks of this day since the first one sank to the bottom of the ocean. It turned out to be a great marketing gimmick. Just go with it. So terrible Turk number two wrestled to a standstill by Farmer Burns. The Turk attempted to throw four Iowa wrestlers, including Burns, in an hour. He disposed of John Voss of Davenport and Horace Carter of Dixon in 18 minutes, but Burns wrestled him for the rest of the hour, thus winning the challenge. And then you have funny things like the Rock Island Argus, December 6, 1905. Burns has match with cousin of Lion Hackenschmidt. Des Moines, Iowa, December 6, Thursday night, farmer Martin Burns will meet Charles Hackenschmidt, a cousin of the Russian lion, Hackenschmidt. He came to this country to meet Jenkins and Gotch, but Jenkins proved to be too busy with his classes at Annapolis, and he came west to meet Gotch. The latter could not be secured for a meet immediately, and a challenge was issued to the, for the Swede to meet the Humboldt man's trainer. Hackenschmidt met 93 wrestlers on the continent during the summer, winning all his matches, and this is a great, hilarious gimmick to me. The Charles Hackenschmidt, billed as George's brother, cousin, or simply young Hackenschmidt. <laughs> and he was actually a Swedish wrestler named John Berg, apparently a gifted wrestler, but sometimes you need a good gimmick to move tickets. 
Yes, we the the origin of the the Anderson brother, <laughs> the addition, yes. And he actually did beat Burns in a wow. mixed rules match. Hackenschmidt won the first fall with Greco-Roman right. rules in 18 minutes, and Burns the second as catch as catch can in 19 minutes and 30 seconds. And Hackenschmidt, Hackenschmidt in quotes, chose for the third fall of Greco-Roman rules and won in 15 minutes. The rules very much were pushed into his favor. So be it. You you compete, you lose. You compete, you win. You can't complain if you agree to the rules. I just think it's funny that people are still wandering around under under fake names and fake gimmicks, trying to get the rub from famous people even back in the early 1900s. And we'll talk about him as a person as well, because as we've discussed, he was a total teetotaler. In the Wichita Daily Eagle, March 13, 1990, he was quoted, I do not drink, smoke, drink coffee, or indulge in any vice or habit that has a tendency to weaken a man physically. He was very much like DDP or William Muldoon, whereas he was hitting his older years. He was just you know, lecturing about the the benefits of a healthy lifestyle, a physical culture of not huffing gasoline or you know chasing prostitutes with a wooden stick. I don't know what people did back then, and that brought him more work and more acclaim. He was also brought in as the conditioning coach for boxer Jim Jeffries for his ill-fated match against Jack Johnson. And in 2021, if you heard Jim Jeffries and Jack Johnson were fighting, it would mean a different thing on Twitter. He'd been <laughs> he'd been friends with Jeffries. He enjoyed learning the mat game and was good friends with Farmer Burns, who used to spar rough and tumble with the heavyweights. Rough and tumble was more or less early MMA. It was something where if shit got got wild, it had to be an all-out fight. Rough and tumble was the way to do it down at the train yards. Burns was even at some point in charge of his conditioning training and served as one of his corner men. There was an incident where Jeffries was at his home enjoying a game of cards with with the old farmer and some of his friends when Stanley Ketchell, regarded as one of the great world middleweight champions in boxing history, showed up. Jeffries, who had some beef with Ketchell, asked him to leave, but the middleweight champion ignored Jeffries' request. According to an article by the Tennessean, dated July 4th, 1910, quote, Ketchell smiled but did not move away. Jeffries continued playing for a few minutes, and then turning to Farmer Burns, jerked his head in the direction of Ketchell and said, put that fellow out. Burns got up, took Ketchell by the shoulder, and turned him towards the cottage. Walking with the middleweight champion as far as the porch, Burns gave him a mild push towards the steps, and Ketchell quickly walked away out the gate and took to his car to town. <laughs> he just, like, throw him out by his ear? What is it going to do? <laughs> And what he made didn't want to fuck with Farmer Burns? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like the uh, like the Danny Hodge of the day, where yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. it's like, it was like, oh well, you see this it was unassuming guy over here. Here, hand him an apple. <laughs> right. You want to see a want to see a trick? So yes, while Burns' focus was on grappling, on catches, catch can wrestling, but he never shied away from a good old rough and tumble fight. It's very similar to modern mixed martial arts, but with less limitations. One of these fights took place when Burns was still a teenager. In an interview for the Quad City Times, Jim O'Neill briefly narrated what could possibly be Farmer Burns' first documented fight. Quote, when the railroad was being put through Dixon, there was a fellow on the work gang who had been training as a boxer and had the reputation of being able to beat anyone. But a neighbor of Martin's said that he had a fellow who could thrash the railroad man and he got hold of Martin who was then just a kid. They hired a haul and the neighbor bet $75 on Martin. 
he and the railroad man went at each other. The first round, they were pretty evenly matched, but after the second round, the railroad man had enough. He wouldn't even come out of his corner, O'Neill recalled. Because Rough and Tumble covered everything from Broughton's Rules Boxing, 30 seconds after a knockdown ending a fight, which is fucking bananas, that once upon a time in boxing, you could knock a guy down, and so long as he could get up within 30 seconds, the fight would continue. So he's not dead. <laughs> Dude, that's, those matches would go like yeah, 90, that's bad. 90 rounds. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Um, all the way up to you know something where it was dangerous, where you would be gouging eyes in order to win the fight. Uh, like I mean, There was an episode of Deadwood, for the people who watch Deadwood, where, where, that, where that was the case. But mostly it was just a good old-fashioned strength street fight with limited rules and a cheering crowd illegal yes but it of course happens yes rough and tumble i have no doubt that farmer burns could handle business you know and he talks about it. he talks about self-defense in the lessons in physical culture and wrestling he's like man anything that's in jiu-jitsu a good wrestling man needs to know and you know like he he was into the self-defense aspect but back then rough and tumble it was like if you watch gangs in new york you'll see some of that where you know, this, I think was, like Burns was Irish, he came from Irish uh, people. A lot of the catch wrestling was really done amongst the Irish, which were kind of like the marginalized people of the Europeans, right? So it was a very poor workman's kind of sport. But yeah, rough and tumble, man, they'd rip the ears, fish hook, eyes. Yeah, well, it ties into our episode on clog fighting, where we talked about dueling, because people think of duels, where you're so mad at somebody, it is possibly a fight to the death or to the tap or however you want to call it. But working class people, they can't afford pistols. They can't afford swords. Those are for the aristocrats, for their dueling. For when you're lower down on the economic food chain, it's putting on pointy shoes or or grappling. Setting up those (laughs) takedowns. Or gra- or, you know, scraping shins yeah. or everything up to gouging eyes and fish hooking where shit just had to get settled in a certain way and shit got settled. Yeah, Carl Gotch used to tell me that uh, with the purring, with the uh, Lancashire up and down with the clogs with the spikes on them, people were dying at, like gangrene. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're the same shoes you're out in the feet. You're basically in murder, murder cleats out in the cow shit, and then I'm using it to... St- Step on your toes to set up a throw, you know? It's it's and again, pre-antibiotics. This is why everyone was dying of Oregon Trail. What made this guy qualified to be a world-class conditioning coach? Because in 1914, Burns published a 96-page mail-order course entitled The Lessons in Wrestling and Physical Culture, which was an in-depth instructional manual for fitness. Keep in mind, this is a man who spent his career dissecting the ways to be stronger for your size, to have the endurance to wrestle for hours, and the understanding of body mechanics to be a submission and leverage expert against bigger opponents. He covered strength, stamina, breathing, and quickly became the gold standard for grappler education at the time. According to many stories, a young wrestler named Robert Friedrich studied Burns' manual intently before going on to proper training and enjoyed a long career under the ring name Ed Lewis. You know what's an interesting parallel that just kind of clicked in my head is Helio Gracie. He started out developing a emphasis on technical grappling because he was physically undersized and he was raised in that environment and he incorporated the health element and the ability of utilizing sort of the carny challenge open challenge aspect and his 
his lineage of disciples and the people that he's taught, there's a lot of parallels there. And it's very interesting because at the end of the day, what he really did was he was more disciplined and took more of a thoughtful approach to grappling. And in that way, he changed the game forever because now it's standard practice to train at a gym. Now it's standard practice to do these other aspects of conditioning and nutrition and implement all those things. But he was one of the first guys putting all this together. Yeah, I'd argue, you know, that, and I, you know, it's not just me. I mean, even like in one of Henzo's books, he talks about this, that, you know, it's really that Count Coma, that oh Maeda, sure, that Maeda who brought it, brought it to brought the it Gracie to family, guys. yeah. And so, but the thing is, is, is Maeda was a catch wrestler. He was active on the catch wrestling circuits and made a lot of money, right? Sure. And when he retired, he went to Brazil. And, you know, he was Japanese and he was a jiu-jitsu guy, but he had, it's my belief that he developed his whole system, which became Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which is so much fighting on the back, from having to constantly fight these catch wrestlers and be able to actually do something when they are constantly putting him on his back. Yeah, and so we talked about that in our carnival episode where, yeah, you have a guy like Omeda who came to America as a judoka but could only find work doing, you know, demos, a.k.a. worked match and open challenges, much like the carnivals, and then got involved in professional wrestling, yeah. toured Europe and in England. I mean, he competed at the Alhambra tournament, which was the most prestigious thing you could possibly do. And, yeah, it did have such an impression on Jiu-Jitsu because, yeah, he was an undersized guy. Uh, who most likely spent most of his uh, time trying to figure out how to tap a guy from his back without his shoulders being down. I think that's a good analogy, though. Yeah, like, just, what, what Helio was Well, he, he created a culture. Yeah, what, what Helio was to jiu-jitsu, Farmer Burns, Burns was to catch the yes. can. Yeah, I, that's a great analogy. Yeah, because he did break things down and codify and made, made a, a curriculum. The workout was broken down into three sections. Warm-up, which was light aerobics and stretching, then a dumbbell and body resistance workout, and then moving on to working with a partner. Again, he was very scientific about his training, and his impact on his peers and students shows why. Burns never really retired from wrestling. Heck, does anyone really? And at the end of the road, he claimed to have had over 6,000 matches with only six losses and was competitive while training with top grapplers well into his 60s, only stopping when he hurt his back in his early 70s. And yes, 6,000 matches is probably unrealistic, but who doesn't pad their numbers? I think the very basics of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu were adding a zero to every match you ever had. (laughs) Yes, totally. Except for me, I've definitely had all of my matches I've definitely fought 90 million times. 90 million? 89, 99, and uh, one draw. (laughs) Martin Farmer Burns died on January 8th, 1937, in Council Bluffs, Iowa, at the age of 75, and was buried at the St. James Cemetery in Toronto, Iowa. He left behind three children, hundreds of world-class wrestling students, thousands of fans, the respect of everyone who knew him, and a legacy of wrestling in Iowa that continues to this day. There are really few places that really scream wrestling than Iowa, whether it's the, you know, the, 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 the college level, the high school level, the MMA level, that is a mecca of wrestling, and a lot of that came from the legacy of Martin Farmer Burns. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think that, especially as we've had these deep dives into these individuals that, that shaped the, 
the path of the sport throughout through the history, he definitely probably legitimately would be on the Mount Rushmore. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like if you took combat athletics, yeah, or American wrestling, or however you want to frame it, he's gotta he's gotta be one of the guys he's who's, who's in the short list to be on that to be on that Mount Rushmore for sure. And I know people have actually been asking us, like, when are you doing an episode about Martin Burns? Yeah. He's been a background character because there's like really... every episode. Yeah, because there's no escaping Farmer Burns no. when you discuss wrestling in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He's omnipresent. He's always there. His shadow loomed so large over the sport, the industry, from the competitive levels to the carny tricks to the... the, the, the pure science of the sport itself to the business side to knowing when to get out and start other endeavors he was the top of the list for every single aspect in that period and his legend lives on to this day a century later yeah and i just want to point this out too he was a fucking worker bro this guy is objectively maybe the first ever gimmick in pro wrestling and while he was the guy who basically established what would go on to be you know he trained gotch right this is a guy who who basically was proto-olympic trainer and yet he is still working crowds to elicit donated money and responses from people by being a stick by dressing up like an unassuming like schlub in the crowd to work like I can't express the carny, the, the, the ability. He may be the greatest combination of a worker and a shooter of all time. Yeah, I can't disagree. I mean, he, it is really, if it wasn't for Burns, arguably, I, he fell in the shadow of Gotch because, you know, that was the golden sure. age. That was when it was at its height, the sport of professional wrestling, the actual sport. And so he kind of fell in the shadow of Gotch, but that's that's kind of a shame because he was such an amazing dude. Like yeah. he outlived Gotch, he outproduced Gotch, he out wrestled. You know, like he was just this incredible, larger than yeah. life character. Yeah, he he existed in that time when. He existed in the time before the Gotch Hackenschmidt era where wrestling went to the heights of the World Series, yeah. where wrestling became front page news. Right. He existed before those times, and then when those times collapsed, he was kind of you know, past his competitive years. Yeah. So, but he's always going to be there in the background. He's always going to be there as part of the foundation. And I could not think of a better subject for our one year anniversary show than Martin so, Farmer Burns. Totally so agree. before we wrap things up, uh, Jake Shannon, thank you so much for being here. Oh, Where can fun. people see what you are up to? Uh, best place is just go to scientificwrestling.com. That's kind of the hub. Has everything I've spent probably 20 years putting together a body of work. Um, specifically on the sport of professional wrestling, catches catch can. So that's probably it. But scientific wrestling, and then you can go to scientific wrestling on Instagram or scientific wrestling YouTube, all that. But that is scientificwrestling.com. He is as much a wrestling nerd as the two of us, and that's why he's here with us. Um, make sure you you like us on Facebook, uh, you follow us on Twitter, check out our Instagram. I love to put up as many old, hilarious uh, news clippings as I can find. There are plenty from this era that just, uh, oh boy, they'll just tickle your funny bone and excite your brain. So for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossard, and for Jake Shannon, thanks for being with us on this journey. 
We'll talk to you next time. Happy anniversary, darlings. Cut Prince Martini.